don't know, is court-appointed uh, advocates for, for kids that have been... Uh, a lot of times uh, taken from abusive homes uh, and, and where they have a... Uh, in, whether they're in foster parents or, or wherever they're placed, they have a court-appointed advocate that walks them through. And the idea of CASA is to give them a single contact person that walks them through the whole process. And the CASA volunteers are able to go in and pull these brand new toys and take a pick based on what this kid needs and be able to give that to them until they have a, a really great Christmas. So they're not getting hand-me-down to the place yet. Are there any suggestions or feedback that you've gotten of the things that they really appreciate or they really You know, it's really across the board. You get to the seven, so, you know, a lot of, you know, teddy bears and things like that are always appreciated, but you also have a lot of little boys, too, so, you know, Lego sets and things like that are also real popular. Oh, okay, good. Oh, we turned in so many toys last last year that they were just amazed. So, so they were just anxious. We were looking at possibility working with some other group, but Casa was saying, "Boy, you guys are wonderful." <laughs> Thank you. So, all right, uh, this weekend, hear anything new? Anything uh, in any of your uh, church meetings or uh, faith promoting rumors? Yeah. The new presidency was. We had a fireside last night. They were. Present, you said? We'll find out. <laughs> that should be good. We were anxious to get to that fireside, and we had a little birthday with a grandson. That, uh, so I heard that went well. Okay, uh, anything else? Yeah. Wow. You still floating? <laughs> oh, bad. I can't even imagine. Bless your heart. Okay. That, along with that, uh, my son put together uh, a little something for. He's Elder's Forum president in the Plano First Ward, and he put together little slides for some slides for his. Elders Quorum that I stole. Uh, and he, he was looking at church membership. And he actually just went through church membership and then he did some graphing and charting, uh, which I thought ended up being really instructive. Uh, if you look at church membership from 1830 to 1880, and we have some experiences like Jackson County and the Exodus to Utah and uh, the Utah War and all of these... Uh, uh, upsetting kind of things and you look at what effect it had on the church membership wise that each time that we have had we've gone through some kind of trial and adversity in the in the church or the membership just kind of keeps climbing okay and then Church membership from 1870 to 1950. Anything that might have come along between 1870 and 1950 that might have affected the growth of the church? Wars. 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 Polygamy. And, and then the uh, suspension of polygamy. And the church lost all that property because of all that. 
went through all of the, the Edmunds-Tucker Act that defranchised the church. We're about to lose the temples. Okay? Um, there's the growth of the church through all of those of that kind of diversity. Okay? Or sometimes we kind of fall back on what do we really believe. And, and, but remember how many times in all these processes, uh, like for instance the New York Times when Joseph Smith was martyred. And the headline was, Thus Endeth Mormonism. Uh, no. Okay, so now the last one, 1950 to 2012, any significant bumps in there? The 1960s, the civil rights movement, Vietnam, Korea. Vietnam, all those kind of things, there's all those times, and, and the, the world is becoming more worldly, so the church is less relevant. Yeah, the revelation of the priesthood. Family. Now those kind of offset, but remember, we're looking also for those things that says, this should bump the church off. The secularization of Europe in the last ten years, where they're becoming less and less religious. Okay, how's the church doing? Not bad. Yeah. Wasn't it where you mentioned that every time they take Mormonism, they take it up the stairs? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that's what's happened, is every time we get adversity. So I guess the, the lesson here is, is that when we kind of get bound up and anxious about what we're seeing and what we're, we get worried about things, look at what happens. The church just continues to grow. Well, and those numbers are based on, what were we at, 50,000 missionaries? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So we're looking, I'm, yeah, we're going to come close to doubling our missionary force in the next little while. And you'd say, well, <clears throat> so I'm expecting normally in a given year we would have somewhere between 250,000 and 275,000 uh, convert baptisms. That doesn't count children of record. And that was based on 40,000, 60,000. So, so I'm, I'm really expecting this next year or two, you may watch that easily climb over 300,000. I think it took three years to add from 14 million to 15 million. Roughly three years. Let's see how long, and so now we're at 16. Let's start 15. 15. Let's see where it's going. I wonder what this chart would look like if it were grafting active members. Uh, the same curve, smaller. What, about 50% smaller? If you take 50% active in a, in a given ward, you're probably pretty close to that in terms of activity. Yeah. I, I wonder, I thought she was going to ask my question, but I wonder what it would look like if you graphed it from the beginning in the 1830s to now. Would it almost look straight up then? Oh, if you had just one graph and you yeah. put all those together? Just like shoot yeah, that's an inter that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Maybe I'll have you redo one and just kind of truncate it. <laughs> Great point. Yeah, cousin. The, uh, is the chart Oh, now, now the now the curve is amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. How many temples do we have? 141. 
10 million there. And so then at conference they said like about 15 or 16 million. So that means in 10 years, one-third one of our members have been with us less than 10 years. That's true. That's true. So you just watch this phenomenal growth that is just exploding here, which is kind of fun to see. All right. Well, that said, let's go ahead and get started. We got, we got stuff. We got stuff to get to. Anybody do a little research on the stone of Schoon? Or the stone of, it looks like scone, but it's actually just because it's Scottish, it's a stone of Schoon. All right. So hang on to that. We're about to come back to it. Okay. So I want, I want to do the setup here. Um, now let's let's look at Genesis uh, twenty-eight. All right. When we last left Jacob. You recall that uh, Mama understood that uh, the youngest son was supposed to rule over the oldest, and so uh, Jacob gets the birthright. Uh, it's time for Jacob to then leave town because Esau wants to kill him. So they're going to send him off into the wilderness. Go visit Uncle Laban. Okay, so here's his journey along. And he comes to Outside, uh, he leaves uh, Beersheba towards Haran, and he lighted on a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and he put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed and beheld a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it ascended to heaven. Uh, behold, the angels of it ascending and descending on it. The Lord stands there, and then and then tells him, uh, confirms to him. If there was any doubt as he's leaving town, it's like, well, somehow I illegitimately stole the birthright from my brother. It's being reconfirmed to him as the Lord says, no, it was intended that you get this birthright. You are the birthright son, even though you're the youngest. Yeah, just like by a heel. You know, so, but, but still, that should be enough that Esau should have the birthright. Uh, and so Jacob, because remember Jacob's kind of worried, we're stealing this from dad. Really? Am I supposed to do this? Uh, this is a confirming of all of that. Now, there, there is a, uh, there's a Hebrew tradition involved here, and, you need, and you're going to start to see it over and over and over again. Uh, the Lord says, I'm with thee. Uh, 16, Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. How wonderful. He says dreadful means wonderful. There is none other but the house of God. His gate is heaven. And then he does an interesting thing. Jacob rose up in the morning. He took a stone that he put for his pillow, set it for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. Um, now, interesting that there is it again. We've talked about this a little bit. Hebrew tradition says that when you place a name on something, you're not just giving it a description. The name itself describes who that is, 
but it also empowers them with certain things. So they always name, you're going to watch the names of the tribes of Israel are all based on certain characteristics. But he's going to name the place, he names the place Bethel. Beth, house, El, name of God. So Bethel is house of God. Okay? Hold on to that idea. Okay. Oh, we got to turn this on. Would oh, you turn it on? Oh, good. Oh. All right. Okay, now. So, he's going to then, um, he's going to vow a vow, and then 22, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. So for him then, this pillar then becomes a, it's a memorial, is it not? It's what? It's yes, it is. And it's a, it's, a, it's a memorial that says, in this place, God is here. This is God's house. And so there's a memorial that... Now, when we talk about memorials, do we do, we do anything with pillars these days? Washington, D.C. monuments. Yeah, there are monuments that are like stone pillars. Cornerstones. Cornerstones, right? Cemetery stones. I was thinking about cemetery stones. In other words, we're going to put a stone monument there. We're going to put the name on it so that anybody might come into this place might spot that this is a sacred place and this person here, here, here they are. We're, we're going to memorialize them. And so once a, once a year on Memorial Day, we go back to the pillars and we memorialize them. We're going to leave them some flowers and remembrances. Okay, that is that is a memorial. So we do pillars. Okay, now a couple of things we need to look at with pillars. First of all, um, back to the uh, stone of Schoon, the the stone of destiny. Okay, uh, let, let, let me just kind of. We just quickly go over the, the story because I, I just think it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. Here's your tradition. The tradition says this particular pillar that Jacob used as a pillow and then he set it up as a memorial. How important does this stone become to Israel? I've got something that said that the Midrash said that he actually put, took his foot and pushed the stone down to the ground and it became the foundation for Yes. In other words, they're going to have to move it because Bethel is a little bit higher up. It's not right up on Mount Moriah. But it's, the stone is going to be brought there. Present? The Joseph Smith translation clarifies that statement a little bit. It says, And the place of this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be the place of God's house. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so here's what they're going to. So now they're going to take this stone by tradition, by midrash. Okay, it says we're going to take this stone, and this becomes one of those elements that says God is here, God is with us, and Father Jacob, who's going to be named Israel. This is where he connected with God. Okay, then that's going to be included in the temp in the temple setting. Okay. Ultimately, it remains in Israel. It's going to be. It's going to travel the 40, uh, 40 years and up into Egypt, back. It's there. It's part of the process. 
and everything. And then what happens when when uh, Israel is conquered, right about the time that Lehi is leaving Jerusalem, then then what happens to the stone? This is where you have to go with English tradition. English tradition then says, and I'm just quoting tradition. Tradition says that Jeremiah the prophet is now taken to Egypt. Jeremiah takes with him uh, the daughter of the king. He takes the uh, Ark of the Covenant and he takes Joseph, uh, Jacob's pillar. He takes the stone. He's then going to take that stone and he's going to go where with it? Anybody know? Ireland. That's right. That's the, that's the symbol for Northern Ireland and you get the king of uh, King of David, because where, where the stone is is going to be the successor to the house of David, to that kingdom. Okay, so that's why you're getting the the, uh, the star of David, and the red hand is is one of the sons. Yeah, yes, and you would be who? You know. Oh, that's right. I, I forget from time to time. Good day, good day. How big is this stone? I'll show you in a second. I'll show you in a second. So, so here is the, this is Northern Ireland's symbol. That's why I looked at the King David kind of thing. And here is Ireland, which is David's heart. Okay? Now, the Irish will conquer uh, the Picts in Scotland, and then they will now take this stone, they will take it to Scotland. And this is now where kings will be coronated upon because they are going to be the rightful successors to King David. Uh, and it is called the Stone of Destiny or the Stone of Scone. S C O N E. Good job. Okay. Isn't it fascinating that the tradition with King Arthur, how did King Arthur, how do we know he gets to be the king? He's going to have the sword, and remember the sword is symbolic of power, right? And where does he get the sword? Out of the stone. So yes, that's where some of that mythology is tied into that, okay? King Edward of Scotland will be, become king of all of Britain. He will then take the, the stone of destiny and he will take it to London and they will build a coronation stone around a chair around the stone. See the stone? Underneath the chair? It's under the seat. Under the seat. And every king, including Queen Elizabeth II, since 1290 whatever, has been coronated on the stone of destiny, the stone of scone the Jacob's pillar as the, as the tradition. Okay? And there's the pillar. Now, it stayed there, uh, Scotland being Scotland. You, you know, they have for, they, they thought for years then that London had stolen the Stone of Schoon and they wanted it back. So in 1996, it is then returned uh, to Scotland with great fanfare. 
So, yeah, it's a big stone. But again, the belief is, and they will quote scripture that says that the throne of David was never to be interrupted, even if the people became wicked. So there is a sense there with the with uh, English royalty that says we are divinely uh, enthroned, and we are the successors to King David. Yes. There's more to the story than that. If you follow after what happened after Christ died, supposedly Mary and her followers went to the islands too. Oh, tons, tons of traditions to go with this, absolutely. I, I just think it's fascinating, though, that there's a belief that says we're tied in to that, and they go back to this story. Yeah. Um, my mother was a chief genealogist, and she told me years ago that there was a lineage that was Because there is another aspect to this. Uh, and remember that Jacob rose up in the early, he put it in the stone, set it as a pillar. There is one more layer, I think, when we talk about pillars. And if you'll look for a second in Revelation 3 12. Verse 11. So here's, this is in Genesis, this is the beginning of the Bible. Now notice this verse comes at the end of the Bible. And listen to this. Behold, 11, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Okay? And then, him that overcometh will I make a where? In the temple of my God. And he's going to do an interesting thing with those that become pillars in the house of God. He does what? I will write my name on them. Remember in the sacrament of prayer, we always say, I will, I'm willing to take upon myself the name of the Savior. And where does that happen? President Oaks says we do it in our life, but mostly it prepares us to do that in the life. 
So in the temple, we create people that become pillars in community, pillars in the world. And how do we know? Because they are a memorial. Remember, pillars are a memorial. For what? Your life then becomes a memorial to... What name are you, are you buried? Christ. So you are then become, by your life, you are you are a memorial to, to Christ, to His goodness. In everything that you do, you are you walk out in, in life, and particularly when you walk out of the temple, you are a walking memorial. You are a pillar. You are Bethel. God should live within you, where you are, the Spirit of Christ should dwell. And people should be able to come to that pillar and receive sustenance. Yeah, and, 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 and it's going to come especially to the descendants of the seed of Abraham, right? That are supposed to be that direct lineage with all of those blessings coming to us and we are pillars. Does that make sense? Questions on that? Is that great? So I say you start looking at the incredible uh, symbolism that goes with all of this. Okay, so now in the middle of all of this, you've got, uh, so now he's, been, he's got the pillar, he's been, he's been given guidance, now, he, now Jacob can continue on his way, uh, and where, he's on his way to Uncle Laban's. Now, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. He arrives in, in Haran. There's the, there's the well. Uh, everybody's just kind of hanging out. And interesting that there's a stone over the well. We're not feeding the sheep yet. Because they're just supposed to come along and take the stone off. They haven't done it yet. Uh, we can't. Verse 8. We can't do it till the flocks are gathered. And while he yet spake unto them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And uh, we should have like soundtrack music, you know, uh, at this moment. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his brother's mother, and the sheep of Laban. Jacob went near and he's going to do a very guy thing. He's going to fix the problem. Yes, I will remove the stone. It will be I. <laughs> Pretty lady, okay, we will remove the stone. Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, for Rachel. Now we're in, in 29. Who was supposed to remove the stone? It, it never says it was, it was really supposed to. Somebody was supposed to come at the appointed time, but everybody's kind of sitting around waiting for the stone to be removed, and Jacob says, I will take care of this. My own self. I have a little, I have a little experience with stones as of late. Okay. And so now we get this. Uh, 16, Jacob kissed Rachel. I don't think that was a big passionate kiss. They were strangers at that moment. So it's probably a, a familial relate, family relationship kind of peck on the cheek kind of thing. But well, not only that, I believe she was a child. Yeah, she would have been young. 
Because she's still seven years away from him. Okay? So, but he kissed her and he lifted up his voice and wept. I think he, yeah, apparently he knew. Okay? Um, Jacob told Rachel that he was a father's brother. He was Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. Came to pass that when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, he ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Okay, there's a lot of kissing going on here. <laughs> told Laban all these things. Uh, you're supposed to uh, dwell here. Uh, Laban said, And to Jacob, uh, what will my wages be? Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Okay? And then we get this, Leah was tender-eyed. Depends on who you talk to, what tender-eyed means. One, one version of this is that uh, she really needed glasses. <laughs> she was really kind of tender-eyed. Or that she had kind of droopy eyes. I prefer to think of Rachel at, or at Leah as tender-eyed as that she had uh, very beautiful eyes. Very tender. Yes. But Rachel was beautiful and well favored. Okay. Uh, and Jacob loved Rachel. I, when I looked at that, I thought maybe Leah was more like emotional. I don't know, like tender. I thought maybe she was weepy, kind of thing. It could be, because even, even when, when I looked at, if you look at the Hebrew word for tender-eyed, which I did trying to have some understanding behind this, it says more weak-eyed. So, I, I don't know, uh, maybe they should go to uh, President Rass and get her eyes done. Yeah? Yeah, and we know she's fertile. Oh, I have to tell you, my mom's name is Leah, and she has a younger sister named Rachel. Wow, really? Yeah, and Rachel, they actually did that to her. They did that to her, and Rachel is kind of a glamorous one. And I found out on my mom's 80th birthday when we were going through her old photos from when she and Rachel moved to Fort Worth to live, that my dad actually dated Rachel before she met her. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> But I ended up marrying Leah anyway. <laughs> awesome. Okay. There's a good question here. Good. Ask it again. I ask if they were fraternal twins. One of the Hebrew traditions is that they were. Rachel and Leah. That they were fraternal twins. And that in the same way you had Esau and Jacob, you had Leah and Rachel born within minutes of each other. That, that, that's one of the traditions that's out there. Okay? Okay. So she's beautiful and well-favored. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, Oh, seven years. Wow. Okay, I can do seven years. I will, I will go with that. Okay, now... So he's going he's gonna to serve seven years for Rachel 
And, and I don't know if Moses put this in or if this was something that was later added uh, by a descendant of Rachel. Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had. I know. That, that is one problem. He shows up in town with nothing. Now he's going to leave with four wives and twelve kids and a lot of, and a lot of herbs and sheep. But, but you're right, he's showing up. Okay. Now, I also need, I need, you to, I need to embed something in here as well. Because I need you to begin to see the story kind of for what it is as well. And that is that, uh, so Jacob is going to serve seven years as a single guy in this country. Do you think that the idea of that the eldest daughter is supposed to get married off first has never occurred to Jacob until the moment the next morning after the wedding? Do you think he knows that? It's tradition. It is tradition. And he's a single guy. He's going to like... Singles activities and firesides. He's got he's to somehow be hearing this. Okay, this is not a shocker. He, in other words, there's a pretty good chance, though it doesn't say it, that he knew Leah would be in the farm. Is there a significance to the seven years? Seven. What does seven years in terms of this kind of? Well, it's an apprenticeship. It's an apprenticeship, but seven years means something. Particular in Israel for this kind of thing. Servitude. I will be kind of, I'm going to take on that yoke. I'm going to be your servant, which means it's in a slave like kind of thing. I do what you tell me to do for seven years. He was a love slave. <laughs> kind of thing. Okay? So he's going to serve seven years for Rachel and they seem but a few days for the love that he had for her. And then after the end of the seven years, now he's going to say, I want my wife, my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together a feast of all the men of the place and made a feast. The uh, book of Jasher suggests that everybody was in on this thing except for Jacob. I think he knew more than yeah, I think so. And just as interesting, the tradition is, is that everybody knew that it was going to be Leah under the veil, not Rachel, except for Jacob. I think he probably knew there was a chance, but I think in his mind, at least, I know Leah's going to be in the bargain, but I at least think I'm starting with Rachel. No. Because uh, so he, he's going to be surprised here. L Laban gathered together all the men, they made a feast, came to pass. He took Leah's daughter, brought it with a veil, and went into her, and it's dark. Yes, and it came to pass that in the morning, it was Leah. And he said unto Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Again, I don't think he didn't, didn't believe that Leah wouldn't be part of the bargain, but he expected that it would be Rachel that wedding night in Leah. Now, is that fair? Yeah, where was Rachel during the... Yes, exactly. Which even more exciting is 
Correct. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Part of what makes these so real is that these are very real stories and real struggles. Reuben, by the way, means... Um, look, a son. <laughs> and and who, who's she saying that to? Jacob. Look, I didn't just have a, a child. I've got a son. Now maybe you'll love me more. She wouldn't have been so direct. The women always did what their fathers told them to do. Even today in good tradition, it is the same. You're told when to marry, when to marry, and how to marry. It can be, yeah, the real orthodox, right? Okay, so then, so listen to this. So now maybe he'll love me. 33, she conceived again and bare a son. Because Lord attained said, Therefore give me a son also, and she named him Simeon, and Simeon means hearing. Lord has heard me. Now I have two sons. Now maybe Jacob will love me more. 
And she conceived again and bare a son. Uh, and bare a son and said, Now this time my husband be joined to me. You know, and she named him Levi. Meaning joined. You just see it over and over and over. And, and, and that's what makes this real. Now, that's why when we look at, sometimes when we talk to a, like 16-year-old kids, 15-year-olds, for whatever reason, if I, if I look at the ones that, I, that show up in my office, amazing how many times I have 15-year-old kids in my office. Why 15? Why, why is it rebellious age? Because they're they can't, can't date, can't drive, and in their mind, life ain't fair. If you're looking at this, how fair is this for Leah? It's not fair. And it wasn't fair that, that, this was, that there was deception involved here. She's spending all of her days trying to kind of get caught up. Is it fair for Rachel? Well, in a sense, not. Because what's happening here? Leah's having kids. Rachel's not. So now there is this growing sense of that there's something wrong with me because if you're not, if you're barren, that's a curse, is it not? What about Jacob? Yeah. He was deceived. And he's got a but that means he's got two wives, right? Yeah, he actually got four wives. He's got Zilpah and Hilma. Okay? You need to go back to the scriptures. The scriptures all things work together for good. And there we go. So, you look at these unfairness kind of things, and then we look at our life, and we go, what do we do in our life when life isn't fair? We pout. We can pout. How else might we handle it? What if life ain't fair? I got a, I got a, a text yesterday uh, from actually from a client and she was looking around church and she was saying, why are some people born... Uh, she says, I feel rebellious a lot of the time. And some, and I, she looked around church and she said, they look... Seems to be so many people that are born good. And they seem to have been good. And they seem to have been blessed. All of their life. What happened? How come I'm rebellious? And everybody... And, and then there are these people in the world that seem to be good. Born good. Always good. Well, that's part of it. Part of it is you don't know the whole story because if you knew the backstory, you'd say, well, there's more to it. How else would you respond to that? Some people seem to be blessed, right? Mm -hmm. I think... I'm sorry. I think a lot of people just don't realize what goes on behind, behind the scenes in people's homes. I, I think everybody struggles with something, something, and it's just you don't see it. We do have a propensity, especially in the church, I think, to compare how we feel inside to everybody else's outside appearance. And we, and we don't know. We don't know. Ned, are you throwing something out there? 
Is that, is that what I was hearing? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Annette started this, this class years ago, so it's good to have it back. Yeah. In order to understand what we're going through now, we have to look back and see how easy we overcame previous trials that thought we wouldn't overcome. Well, and the effect of the trials on us. Right. Because that's the other thing that I look at, uh, is that I've always... In, in, my, in my career, I've worked a lot with kind of past traumas and post-traumatic stress and those kind of things. And I'm always amazed when I watch those that have gone through uh, major trials, trials in their life that the Lord seems to always have a compensating gift of a blessing somehow. Sometimes it's just a more compassionate heart. Sometimes it's a more discerning heart. The Lord seems to always have a blessing. Look at Leah. What was her compensation? Her children. Yeah. The fact that she was that, that she was able to conceive so easily. I think when, when we ask, you know, why is this not fair? We have, like in this case of Leah, who is it not fair to? Because it's like praying for rain here. Yes. And somebody else is praying for it to stop raining. <laughs> But sometimes in the middle of our pain, we become pretty self-focused and we're just saying, okay, Arthur. <laughs> we become pretty self-focused and we don't necessarily, it has a tendency, whether it's discouragement or stress or depression or whatever, we have a tendency to screen out the good things in our life and focus on the, the, the tough parts. We do. And because we can only learn it here in mortality. 
We can, and that's why sometimes I think we miss out on the blessings of unfairness. Because sometimes in that unfairness and what doesn't seem to be right means that there are, there are things going on in our life and blessings that others are being given. There, there, the time in our life of that life was pretty unfair for us financially. We were in a really hard place. And yet, in that unfairness, there were some people that actually loved us and, and helped us in some ways that were a real blessing to them and to us. Do you think things could happen in the pre-mortal existence that could affect how much someone is? Um... That, see, the, 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 that, that's a good question. Because sometimes when, when life is unfair for us, we're going to get caught in... Uh, if, it must be something I did. And if I can't picture that it's something I did here, because we want to make that correlation. It, my unfairness is a punishment. So if I can't see that I really did anything too bad here, sometimes we'll cross it over to the other side, or sometimes we'll do it the other way around. Maybe if my unfairness is a blessing or my trials are a blessing, then I did something there to deserve. You're right. We do that rather than just say, sometimes the unfairness is, is just, um, I, I was trying to explain to somebody the other day that has uh, anxiety and panic, and I said, congratulations, you got the lottery. The genetic lottery landed in your favor and you do you now have panic attacks. It was not a matter of anything you did or lessons you need to learn or things you did in the pre-existence. It's simply a matter that the lottery says that your your family, four generations back, has all had anxiety and depression and stuff like that, and you've got it on both sides of your family. Congratulations, you won. And now you deal with it and you take it from there. The way I deal with Refine ourselves from where we were even into existence. Things that was because he knew what was going to strengthen us. Sure, he did. And so forth. And I, I don't know that it was a punishment or a curse or anything carried over from our existence. I think it was to help make us better. Yeah. I've got a, I've got another particular uh, friend of mine who's struggling with activity in the belief in the church. He's still active in the belief. Uh, and he keeps looking at the unfairnesses in his life and has to say, okay, God is God. It doesn't make sense that God would do this to me. I'm trying to be a good guy, but I get all these unfairnesses. And if God is doing this to me, I'm not sure I can believe in a God that does this. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't sound like a God I was taught growing up. And it doesn't make sense though that God is not doing this to you, but He is going to give tender mercies on how to... Uh, ultimately escape them or to grow from them. I think and you went, maybe, well, maybe. I think a lot of it is learning to trust God and that His ways are not our ways and what our purpose is here on earth. Because uh, we, we, we cannot determine what is fair. No. We really can't. We don't know what's fair. Oh, isn't that, isn't that perfect? Because isn't that part of this? We're determining what's fair and what's not, right? It's our definition. Okay, that's fair. Yes, sir. Sp speaking of fair, everybody else walked in. And can see the screen, by the way. Well, I was blessed to be baptized and joined this church in February of 1960. 
I have been active in the military. I spent 24 years in the military. And uh, I, there's never been a time since the day I was baptized that I have been inactive. I know the church is true. Years and years ago, there was a bishop, Lynn McKinley, who wrote a book titled, The Spirit Giveth Life. And in that book, he pointed out that uh, he found himself at home one day, alone, the rest of the family had been shopping or whatever. And he went into his study and there kneeled down and was blessed to have brought to mind every sinful thing, everything he had done in error, and had been able to truly make a covenant and truly repent of those things which he'd done in error. Now, I was uh, stricken blind in, 19, in 2007. I've been blind about five years. And prior to that time, uh, I'm a trumpet player and I played with four or five bands around here regularly. I <clears throat> did a lot of things. I was active. And uh, things came to a screeching halt whenever I no longer could drive. But uh, I remembered that, uh, that one chapter in Lynn King's book and have been blessed to find myself at home alone uh, a lot in those five years and have been, I've never looked at my blindness as a, uh, a detriment as something that was given to me because I had been uh, an unevil, uh, an evil man, yeah. but uh, have been blessed to go back through my life and just really be brought to mind all of those things that I have done in error. Some just pure evil and truly covenant with Heavenly Father and uh, make my covenants with Him and uh, have been blessed to have the time which I would not have had had I had sight but I have used that time to really repent and talk to Heavenly Father about the blessings that I've had. I've, I've got, we've been blessed. I have a good income. And uh, there's never been a time I've been inactive. I'm being redundant when I say that. But uh, the church is true. And I truly know that. And I knew that when the Holy Ghost really touched me before I joined this, this church. And uh, I know that uh, this is the Lord's priesthood on the earth that I've been blessed to have. And again, forgive the redundancy, but I have been so blessed to be able to have the time and the intelligence to sit and ponder those things through my life, even from great school days. You've actually kind of been blessed by the unfairness. You've been kind of blessed by your unfairness. Yep. Thank, thank you for those words. Yeah, Sister Moon. We've had quite a few occasions to tell our kids life will not always be equal. Right. But as your all-knowing and perfect parents, <laughs> it will always as you're all-knowing and perfect parents, yes, it will always be fair, and it just kind of dawned on me that's exactly uh, what I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think Heavenly Father 
Isn't that interesting? So our unfairnesses end up being a blessing to us even if we can't see them at the time. Yeah? Uh, my wife taught me to say, when things aren't going well, to say, well, we're in the extra blessings now. <laughs> we're, we're now using those. And then when things go even worse, she goes, we're in the bonus blessings now. <laughs> and then when things go even worse, she goes, we're on an adventure now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's continue on here. So I want you to take this sense of what is fair and what is not, and now let's move forward. Okay? The time we got remaining. Let's hop over to verse 31. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump over a lot of this. Chapter 31. And the short term at this point now, uh, 20 years later, Jacob now has uh, four wives, twelve kids. Lots of herds. He's a very rich man. In fact, the, the, the growing jealousy on Laban's part that uh, Jacob's herds are always looking good. Laban's are, are always looking awful. And it doesn't matter how they divide him up. Jacob's are always blessed. Laban's is not. Laban has been deceptive with him a lot of times. Uh, been very unfair with him at times. Uh, Jacob's getting blessed, and he really doesn't ever want Jacob to leave because he's blessed because Jacob's there, and he's afraid of what will happen if Jacob leaves. Okay, so here we go. Verse 3. Yeah, but where did the extra wives come from? Z- Z- each, each wife, each, Leah and uh, Rachel were both given handmaids of the younger daughters. Well, and there's also tradition So we really don't know for sure, but Rachel Lee and Zil- Zilna and Bilfog. I feel sorry for Jacob. You feel sorry for Jacob? Yeah. He's only got one father-in-law and one mother-in-law. <laughs> okay, let, let, let's go on here. Now... The Lord is going to say unto Je- after all this time, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Okay, now, the Lord saying, as 20 years later, go home. It's now time to go home. And the first thing that would come to Jacob's mind would be Esau. I would like to go home, go see mom and dad. But there is that Esau. Okay, and I've done him wrong. Okay? Now, then he, he calls him Rachel and Leah. Uh, I'm not quite sure. And then he's going to say, look, the angel of the Lord spake unto me in a dream. Saying, and he said, here I am. Here am I. 13. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou bowest a bow unto me. Now arise and get thee out of the land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Okay. Now again, I'm going to skip over part of the story. So they're going to go. Laban's not going to be happy. Laban tries to track him down. Uh, Rachel's going to steal a couple of Laban's idols. They're going to try and find those idols. She's going to sit on them so they can't find them. I mean, there's a you read read them between here. There's a, there's a kind of a fascinating little story here. But I want to go to. Um, So here we are, chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him 
And when Jacob saw them, he says, this is God's host. And then he does what Jacob always does when he has a spiritual experience is he names the place. And those are the memorial. He might even have stuck a pillar there. I don't know. He names the place. Uh, okay, and then he's going to send messengers off to, to see how Esau's doing. Now, let, let, me, let me just remind, start. I want you to start seeing a pattern here. Ray, er, he was told, uh, he was blessed by his father. Jacob was that he would be, he'd have innumerable kids. Then he's going to have the experience of Bethel, saying, "You will, your life will be preserved." Then he's going to, then he's going to be told by God, "Go back, and it will be okay." Then he's going to see angels on his way home. Is he still fearing? Yes, a lot. I want you to keep that in mind because many of you fear. And you sometimes look at your patriarchal blessings and you look at the experiences in your life and you go, I'm not allowed to be fearing because I've received priesthood blessings or because i got patriarchal blessings or because I'm a Latter-day Saint. I shouldn't have fear. Look at Jacob. Jacob is having all of these experiences and there's still a fear about what Esau might do. To the point now where I'm still not sure, I know God told me this, but that's why I say so human. I'm still not sure. We're going to send servants off. Tell me if you find Esau. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob and said what? Yeah, we saw Esau. And by the way, he's not alone. He's got 400 men. Can you see Jacob's face? I know I got angels. And I know I did the pillar thing. And I know... But 400 men were toast. And he's got to be really angry. How do I defend against 400 men? So he becomes greatly distressed. He divides the people with him into two bands. He's going to put half on this side of the river, half on the other side of the river. So if 400 men attack, at least half can escape. And then, then they're going to get closer. He's actually going to send lots of flocks. Maybe, maybe we can buy him off. Send all this stuff to, so that Esau won't be mad. Even notwithstanding all the reassurances he's had. So he's going to do that. And, and then, and this, this becomes really important. I want you to, uh, this can be key to where we're going to go here. Then he's going to pray. Verse 9. Oh God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. The Lord which said to me, return unto this country. You told me to do this. Then listen to these words. I am not worthy. Of the least of thy mercies and all thy truth which thou hast showed unto thy servants. For my staff I passed over this Jordan. I sent them there and become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I fear him. Notwithstanding all the reassurances that he's done. Was Leah and her kids in the first band? Leah, he does an interesting thing. There's a band in front, Leah and her kids here, Rachel at the back. There's still a kind of an unfairness here. Yeah. And then ultimately, 
he's gonna he's hearing that Esau's coming, he sent some, and then here here we go. So ultimately he's gonna send all the everybody else on the other side of the river, and it says, and Jacob was alone. And there wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. Now, don't know if this was an angel sent by God. Don't know exactly what the nature of this. But don't don't necessarily believe that this was a physical WWF type of wrestling match going on here. Because we know a little bit about wrestling, do we not? Okay. This is an internal battle. Yeah. And and when he saw that he prevailed not, and he's hanging on, and at the end of this, 27, uh, here comes the, uh, the, the, this man says unto him, what is thy name? He says, Jacob. Anybody remember what Jacob's name means? Supplanter. I supplanted the older brother. Thy name shall no longer be called Jacob, the supplanter. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Therefore he will be called Israel the prevailer. That's what Israel means. You prevailed. You hung in there. You didn't give up. You wrestled. Now, I want you to, I want you to see an interesting parallel here and so that you understand a little better this wrestle. If I were going to ask you to take me to somewhere in the scriptures that involved wrestling, where would you take me? Yeah, you guys got it, right? Okay, so let's hop over for just a second to Enos. Now, let's remind ourselves, who's Enos? Very nice. You're, getting, you're about to get it. Who's, who's Enos' father? Jacob. Now, what, is, what has just happened? Well, Enos took over the... He's, he took over the records, so that means he's got the brass plates. What's on the brass plates? The story of the Old Testament, right? You think he has Jacob's, and he would be interested in a Jacob... In the, in the brass plates. Is there a chance that Enos has Jacob's wrestle story in front of him from the brass plates? Let me show you why I think that's almost a certainty. Came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father, he was a just man, Jacob, and he taught me the language and the nurture and admonition of the Father. Blessed be in the name of my God. I will tell you of the wrestle that I had. Why? For the remission of my sins. You know, if you put a little bit different emphasis on it, if the idea is that he could have read Jacob's account, then if you put the emphasis on, and I'll tell you of the wrestle I had. Yeah, that's true. If I just read that Jacob's wrestle, I'll tell you about the wrestle that I had. Yep. And the wrestle specifically for Enos was the remission of his sins. Real quickly, let me go back. 
What was Jacob worried about? I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies. What would you guess was part of Jacob's wrestle that night with God? His worthiness. Am I worthy to receive all of this? Okay? Now, uh, now, and this, this is it's subtle, but it's so beautiful. I will tell you the wrestle that I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. Behold, I went to do what? Hunt beasts in the field. Who hunts beasts in the field? Esau. I am like Esau. I, I'm a hunter. He's a hunter. And I'm going to wrestle. I am like Esau and I want to become like Jacob. Now, let's, let's describe what wrestling is. My soul hungered I knelt down before my maker. Think of, think of Jacob. This is a, he's going to call the place Peniel. Meaning the face of God. I, I, my soul hungered. I knelt down before my maker. I cried unto him in mighty prayer for my own soul. And all the day I cried unto him. Yea, and that night I did raise my voice unto the heavens. And then I, was, I heard a voice saying, my, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And Enos could have said then, this place is called Peniel, for I have seen God here. My sins have been forgiven. Now, once his sins are forgiven, who does Enos then pray for? His brother. You get the pattern? If this is Jacob at Peniel and he's going to pray, he's going to wrestle with God for forgiveness of his sins, who would he then, then next pray for? His brother Esau. The hunter. Pray for him. Okay? And I knew that God could not lie. Uh, in fact, the word back in verse 2, without getting too technical, I will tell you the wrestle which I had before God. That before God, is, the term for that is the face of God. That is, in Hebrew, that would be translated as peniel, the face of God, which Jacob is going to call the place where he's praying. Okay? So many parallels here. And I think Enos is going to... Enos, it, there, there's no question in my mind that Enos has access to that story and he sees himself as an Enos trying to become a Jacob like his father. Does that make sense? Just amazing stuff. Okay, now. How do you spell Peniel? It's going to. It's right. Oh. Verse thirty. Okay. And Jacob called the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Okay. Okay. So he's going he's, he's gonna to raise, and then we will, let me finish with this. 
So, at this point, let's, let's backtrack here. Why is he going to head home? God told him to do it, told him he would be saved. Uh, before he's going to go, he's going to see angels telling him he, he would be saved. Uh, then he's going to have this experience. God's telling him he's going to be saved. And he receives and the, the covenant name change. He's no longer Jacob the Splinter. He's now Israel, the Prevailer. Now, so he's got all of these reassurances. And then he's going to look, he's going to, it, it's morning, he looks up, and who's coming? Esau. And all of those reassurances will under the sun. That's why I think if you look at this, think about all the reassurances that you've had in your life, and then you still fear, and then you worry because you fear. So did Jacob. It's really easy under those moments to get scared and forget what we've been blessed and promised. Jacob lifted up his eyes. Look, here comes Esau with his 400 men. Now he's quickly dividing them. You guys get back. Verse 3, he passed over before them. He bowed himself to the ground seven times. You just see this, this great humility pouring out of him. And he battles, and then he came unto his brother. And here's the moment. Here's the moment. After all that he's been through, and he still doesn't know, and he's done everything that he could. And Esau ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they. These are old men. <laughs> Jacob was 97. Yeah, so, so these are 97 year old guys. What I find fascinating is possible that Esau's heart was changed somewhere along the way and set off the 400 men to kill him and change. But it's also just as real possible that Esau had a change of heart after all these years and was coming out. And, and Jacob is worried, 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 worried. And the Lord was going to open that Esau's heart would be changed. Well, this is like the ultimate high story. Oh, it is. is like, guys. You, you saw my birthright, but look how successful I am. I'm coming to you, not in the Mercedes Benz, but with 400 men. Yeah. You know, right. maybe some of his wife, maybe some of his children. I am a successful man. The, the closest I've actually seen to, to something that would match this, uh, there's an interesting moment, and, and it's an old grainy, it had to be an old grainy uh, movie that, that, uh, of, a, of a moment when those that fought at Gettysburg and those that had come across uh, in Pickett's charge to the stone wall and then, then they were being mown down by the, by the, the guns coming from the Union forces. Um, those that have survived that battle, that there's a moment, I think it's like 50 years later, that they brought those survivors out to Gettysburg. And the Confederate soldiers that crossed that bloody field did it again. And, and, and you see them in this kind of this grainy little video that was being shot at that time. Uh, and you see these old men 
kind of across the, the field up to the stone wall. And you hear him kind of yelling, the kind of the rebel yell. And then you see the Union soldiers coming up there, and then they, they meet at the stone wall, and they start hugging. The battle's over. And now these old men in repose just see what it, what it really is. And I think that's the moment. And Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And then he says, wow, who are all these kids? Wow, look at all these. Look at all these. And then he says... What Verse 8. What meanest thou by all this drove which I meant? You sent me all of these herds. What does all that mean? And Jacob says, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord so that you won't hate me. And I love Esau's power. And Esau said, I have enough. Life wasn't fair. I didn't get the birthright. You know what? In retrospect, after after 20 years, I have not. That's what I'm just going to say. Because if you remember, Esau did get the blessing. You mentioned this, you mentioned this last week, that he would be successful in this life. And, and the birth would re- the give its fatness, and then he would have all these things, and he's become very wealthy. And the birthright didn't. No, the birthright didn't stop him from those things. I had enough. I've been blessed. It wasn't fair, and I have enough. Jacob spent 20 years in the wilderness. I, I thought about that. It's like Jacob is going to be with his father and mother, and then he's going to have to leave. And he will have an experience at Bethel on the beginning, and he's going to have another experience at uh, Peniel at the end. But in between there, he's gone 20 years without getting to see his, his kindred. You're right. So there's an additional blessing for Esau. Even though Esau has this disturbing habit of marrying Baal-worshipping Canaanite women that, that drive his mom to nuts, he still gets to kind of be around. Okay? Uh, Esau says, I have enough. And then Jacob says, Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt gracious will, graciously with me, and because... I have enough. That to me is, is kind of the story here. In the midst of pillars that we are supposed to become pillars, that the Lord will bless us through all the unfairnesses that seem to come into our life. That if we will just stay true, that the blessings will show up and there will be a moment in your life where you're able to say, even though life was not what I expected and I didn't always get exactly what I thought it was supposed to be, there is a moment coming when your heart will finally be at peace. You would reconcile to those that you struggled with. And if you allow that to happen, you have an ability to say, as Jacob did, God hath dealt graciously with me I have And to me, that's, that's the story of Jacob. I have not. I pray that as Israelites, these are our fathers, as Israelites, that we can also recognize that we too have enough. 
And I need that with you in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this class. So grateful for the opportunity to study those scriptures with the insights and the um, revelations that our teacher and all the participants contribute to the class each week. I ask for your blessing as we go forth the rest of the week and the rest of the day. That your spirit will continue to be with us until we meet next week. Thank you. Amen. Amen. All right. So Rachel was old enough when he first met her, but he was 77. I think she was older than the same as she is. I know.